Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning, our text is in Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of Zechariah chapter 5. If you look in the front inside cover of your order of worship, remember there's a chart there that kind of chronicles our journey through Zechariah's night visions. We've already looked at five of these visions so far, and this morning we will tackle the sixth, the vision of the flying scroll seek to understand its meaning. I was talking to Ann Smith this morning as the Smiths were coming in. She said they had agreed on the way over, on the drive over, that this is definitely the weirdest of the visions that we've come across, this weird, surreal flying scroll. And I think it would be fair to say that, that the prophet Zechariah may have felt the same way. Because if you take a look at our text and you compare the words of uh, verses 1 and 2 to what we saw earlier, the earlier visions, like take, for example, this is at the beginning of chapter 4, what we looked at last week. It was the angel who talked with me, came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of sleep. And he said, what do you see? Zechariah replies, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it, period. So he sees this vision of a lampstand, and that's pretty strange. But at the end of that sentence, there's a period. Now look at our text. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll, exclamation mark, which suggests to me that even for Zechariah, things were getting a little bit strange, a little bit surreal in this vision. And indeed, in this vision and the next one, we will see some of the most unusual images that are used. So let's turn to our text, hear the word of the Lord. And again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. Father, as we contemplate this flying scroll, this curse, we ask, that in these words of warning, we would also find words of comfort and of hope. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. There is a progression, as hopefully you can see, as the building, the, the visions build one on top of the other. We're seeing, uh, through a glass darkly, stepping stones in the plan of salvation, in the history of salvation. If you think about what we've seen so far, it helps understand what we now witness at the beginning of chapter 5. The night visions are visions of the future. They're a glimpse of what is to happen. 
So what is the future? What is going to happen according to Zechariah's visions? Well, for one thing, as we saw in the vision, the iniquity of the people will be taken away. There is a work of atonement to look forward to in the future. And through a glass darkly, this is a a foreshadowing of Jesus's atonement. And then we saw in the fifth vision, not only will the iniquity be taken away, but that the people will be built into a spiritual body, into a temple, into a house, a dwelling place for God. Now that we've seen that, though, our focus changes. The last two visions, we've been inside the temple as we've uh, approached from the outside, from the nations into the land and then into the temple. Now we're working our way back out, out from the temple into the land once again. And we learn things about what's going to take place in the land. Or in Hebrew, and maybe you've heard this term before, ha'eretz, the land, the promised land is what's being referred to here. Not just the whole world, but the whole land of promise is being referred to. We learn that that land is to be a land of righteousness which means that those who break God's covenant will come under the penalty of God's covenant. In order for it to be a land of righteousness, then there also have to be penalties for unrighteousness. And that's what we see in this vision. Those who are in the land, who do not love God and do not love their neighbors in Christ, will see their houses consumed. And that's the message of this prophecy. There is a curse that will consume the house of the covenant breaker. There is a curse, not over the land, but a curse specifically that will consume the house of those who break covenant with God. And that curse comes to us in the surreal form of a flying scroll. As you picture the vision, you've got to picture something like a, an unfurled flag, something huge above Zechariah, something you can imagine sort of fluttering in the sky overhead as you look up. And as you picture that scroll, that unfurled document flapping in the wind, kind of lording it over us, what you've got to understand is that the scroll is a covenant document. That the scroll's a document, number one. Scrolls are constantly being referred to in prophecy as, as things to, to write God's word down on. Here, take a scroll and write this down. Here, take a scroll and eat it. But there's a significance to scrolls. They're documents, but specifically, the, the, the ultimate document of God's word is God's covenant with his people. And this scroll functions as a covenant document. Now, in order to understand why that is, you have to realize that a covenant has a sort of structure. A covenant between a Lord and his people always has certain pieces. You see this in scripture, these various pieces of the covenant are present whenever God makes covenant with his people. Uh, There are always blessings And there are also curses or sanctions, they're sometimes called. The blessings come from covenant keeping. And the sanctions or the curses come from covenant breaking. Now, there are all sorts of parts of a covenant. There's like a historical prologue where God talks about the good things he's done in the past. 
There's the promise that he makes to be our God and we will be his people. But then you also get the blessings and the curses, the blessings and the sanctions. But what's interesting is, in shorthand, when the Bible wants to refer to the covenant as a whole, oftentimes the thing that functions as the shorthand are the curses. Or the curses are, are the stand-in for the whole. The covenant includes blessings, but often is heavily weighted on the side of curses. So when we see the documents, which contains a curse, we should think of God's covenant, but specifically the aspect of the covenant that relates to those who do not love God and do not love their neighbor as they are called to do. Now, this is a scroll we're told that has two sides. Like one side of the scroll speaks to one kind of, of curse or judgment. The other side of the scroll speaks to another. And as you puzzle over this two-sided scroll, it seems we're meant to think about the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the law, which if you go back to Exodus, in Exodus 32, are actually described as double-sided talks about the writing on the one side and on the other. So this is a way of speaking of the two tablets. A common way of dividing the Ten Commandments is our obligation towards God and our obligation towards our neighbor is the way the, the law there is divided. So you can see something similar taking place here. So the, the scroll has the status of like the declaration of law in the context of God's covenant. But that's not all. There's some interesting things about this scroll. Like, for example, why does it matter what size the scroll is? Are we meant to be impressed? Like, this is a really big piece of paper. Like, it's 20 cubits wide and, and 10 cubits tall, or, or perhaps not paper, but, but animal skin that's being written on. Like, that's really big. Like, that's impressive. Is there any significance beyond that? So a cubit is the measurement from your elbow to your hands, and it's about 18 inches or so is kind of the way people calculate these things. So what we're looking at with 20 cubits by 10 cubits is something like 30 feet by 15 feet, approximate size, kind of in our way of measuring. What's interesting about those measurements is they correspond to aspects of the temple. Remember, we've been talking about the temple for weeks now prophetically, this house that God is building. And it turns out, if you were to measure the scale of the outer courts of the temple, the, the court of judgment, the temple forecourt, you would find these are the measurements of that place. Inside the temple, the place associated with doing justice, rendering verdicts, the measurements of that place correspond to the measurements of the scroll. That's not all, though. Remember last week, we talked about the Holy of Holies and how on either side of the ark, it was flanked by these giant golden angels. They were plated in gold and they were made of olive wood. The dimensions of that space, which they filled, corresponds to these same dimensions, 20 cubits by 10 cubits, about 30 feet by 15 feet. So again, this scroll, this covenant document, its dimensions have a temple significance. They conjure the, the space of judgment in the temple. They conjure the Holy of Holies, which of course reminds us of God's holy presence in the midst of his people, which is what his covenant-making 
is all about. So it seems as if this curse is bad news for the unrighteous, depending on their unrighteousness, right? It's pretty bad if you're a thief. It's pretty bad if you perjure yourself, if you lie in God's name. But you may think to yourself, I'm good. Those aren't my particular sins. If they had mentioned something else, I might have been in trouble. But these two sins, I'm good here. What you need to understand here is that theft and perjury, the two sins that are being condemned, are sins that, again, stand in for all unrighteousness. They have a representative value to them. The Bible condemns theft because it regards theft as a sort of uh, summation or like the culmination of the failure to love your neighbor. To steal from your neighbor is like the highest expression of the absence of love. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 4, when he gives instructions about what to do if you're a thief, he says not only that you should stop stealing, but that you should start working, not so that you can support yourself honestly, that you should start working so that you will have something to give to those in need. So the reversal of theft isn't just not stealing. The reversal of theft is generosity, which is an expression of love of neighbor. Right? So in biblical terms, this one sin speaks to something much larger in how we relate to one another and how we care for one another. The same thing is true with perjury, because to perjure yourself, especially in this context, but also now, is to lie while taking God's name, to associate the holy name of God with falsehood, the highest expression, again, of a failure to love God. If we lie in his name, if we associate what is unholy with his holiness, then we demonstrate by our actions that we do not love him as we should. In Leviticus 19, these two sins are kind of combined together in this way to to show this representative uh, quality that they have. We read in verse 11 of Leviticus 19, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. On these failures to love, whether it's failure to love God or failure to love one another, there is a curse, there's a penalty, there's sanctions for this. In Proverbs 3.33, we read, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. There's a curse on the house of the wicked. And those who persist in this failure to love, there is a curse. And the scroll contains it. The scroll symbolizes it. The scroll contains the sanction and curse for covenant breaking, which is why those who do not love God and do not love their neighbor, this is what they're guilty of. This is what they're guilty of. And the penalty is that the curse will enter in and take up residence in their house. It will come to live in their house and it will consume everything. The curse is like a bad guest who comes in and settles and and, and eats all your stuff and never leaves until the entire structure is destroyed. That's the warning that we're being given here in this image. There is a curse that will consume the house of the covenant breaker. So obviously, love God and love your neighbor 
would be the result. But we don't like to contemplate destruction. We don't like to contemplate punishment or penalties. Certainly, we always seek to err on the side of grace, and sometimes that leads us not to take seriously these kinds of prophecies that talk about judgment, that talk about punishment. But the thing you have to remember is that some houses need to be torn down. Some houses need to be torn down. In particular, plague houses need to be torn down. Now, so far, the night visions have focused on building. They've focused on building the house of God. And now suddenly we've turned our attention to a different house, the house of unrighteousness. And we're no longer building. What we're seeing here in this vision is the house of unrighteousness will be torn down. But the house of unrighteousness is going to be consumed. And sometimes things have to be torn down. Some of you have watched in the news this week as, as disaster has befallen our brothers and sisters down south, and they have complained about their, their slightly below freezing temperatures and how it's shut down their entire world. Last Sunday, it was negative 20. We were fine, but there was pandemonium everywhere in Texas, for example, where my parents live. And so I made a, a point of trying to check in with them to see how things were going. Uh, they lost power. Their phones died. It was, it was actually a little stressful for me as a son trying to find out what's going on. Uh, and unfortunately, we found out after everything was kind of back to normal that they had some burst pipes. And so part of the house had had water come down, go through the walls, and, and there was like two or three inches of standing water in a part of the house. And uh, yeah, that's a problem. And it means that that part of the house is going to have to be torn down. If you've ever had water come through like that, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not the kind of person that likes to tear things down. If my stuff gets damaged, I like to think everything will be fine. If, as we've had before, there's a water leak, once it dries, leaves its stains behind, I like to think problem solved. The water has dried. We can move on. We don't need to call a contractor. That's only going to lead to more trouble. But, but as homeowners know, you have to do something about that problem. And if you live down in Texas, you definitely have to do something about that problem because the water doesn't just dry. It creates mold black mold. And if there's one thing worse than thinking your parents are, are living without electricity, it's that they're living in like a den of mold, right? That has to be torn down. It has to be dealt with. It's a problem that cannot just be ignored. In the book of Leviticus, you see a similar situation when it came to disease, uh, leprosy. Now, in Leviticus, that the word leprosy is used to describe a broader set of diseases and problems than, than the way we talk about leprosy now. It, it's, it's not as specific. So there are actually instructions, not just about what to do if someone gets leprosy, but what to do about the house that is infected. If you look in Levitical law, the instructions are that if a house has been infected, then the part of the house that has been infected has to be torn out. And the pieces that you've torn out have to be brought outside the city and left in an unclean place. Well, what happens if you do that, but then the problem comes back? 
Well, if you do all of that and the problem reoccurs, the solution is you've got to tear the whole thing down. In Leviticus 14.45, it says, And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. So that's how they would deal with the spread of disease in a house. They would tear the house down, bring it to an unclean place so that it couldn't come back. Because if it did, then more people would be infected, more people would be sick and would die. But that idea of tearing down the house becomes in Scripture also a metaphor for dealing with uncleanness, for dealing with sin. In Jeremiah 22.5, you read these warnings from the Lord. If you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. If we don't clean up the problem, the house will be consumed. The house will be destroyed. Jesus spoke this way as well. You look in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he laments over the fact that Jerusalem is rejecting the Messiah who has come to deliver it, he says these words in verse 38 of Matthew 23, see your house is left to you desolate. So the positive side is the house of the Lord is going to be a house of righteousness. The land of the Lord is going to be a land of righteousness, but that means that the people of the Lord, God's people, must possess the righteousness of faith, as Paul describes it, which is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. That those who reject the promise, even if they're in the covenant community, even if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you've grown up in church, if you've paid lip service to the faith, but you do not truly repent of your sins and you do not love God and love your neighbor and bear spiritual fruits, then these words should be a warning. Because those who reside within the land but do not love the God of the land or their neighbors will be, to use these words, cleaned out and consumed. Prophetically speaking, those words of Jesus find a fulfillment not very much farther in history. It was only in, uh, I guess, within a generation, in AD 70, when that temple was destroyed and remains so to this day. It's interesting. We're talking about destruction, pulling down houses. We're talking about penalties, punishments, that sort of thing. And it sounds a little terrible and a little terrifying, and it should. But you have to remember that the thing we're talking about here is justice. The thing we're talking about here is the establishment of, of righteousness and holiness. It's just that depending on where you're standing, these things that the Bible sees as very good can seem very frightening, very terrifying. Because justice is a plague to the unjust. Justice is a plague to the unjust. Righteousness is a curse to the unrighteous. But the truth is that injustice and unrighteousness are the disease. Those are the problem. And it's not virtuous to be sympathetic towards the disease and worry that the disease is being stamped out. 
too drastically. Sometimes drastic measures are necessary. In fact, there are things in life you would only do if it was an emergency. You think about it, there are some things you wouldn't imagine doing unless you had no other choice. Things so terrible to contemplate that the only circumstance in which you would even think about doing them would be absolute dire emergency. I haven't seen the movie, but people tell me all the time about the movie about the guy who gets trapped in the rocks and like his arm is trapped and the solution to that problem is to saw off his arm and get away. I don't want to see that. I don't want to think about it. I'm the kind of person that if I see something like that, all I'm ever going to think about when I look at my arm is what it would take for me to saw it off. And uh, yeah, you don't do things like that on a whim. You don't do things like that unless there's no other choice. Because that's drastic. That's radical. If somebody has, has done something as extreme as that, then you better believe the problem was even bigger. The problem was enormous in order to justify action like that. I mean, you can tell how big the problem was by looking at how drastic the solution had to be. That's often the way it is with sin. As sinners ourselves, we have so little appreciation for the size of this problem. And it is easy for us to pretend that our unrighteousness is not a big deal. That in the overall scheme of things, it'd be fine if, if, if our sin just got a pass. But you have to ask yourself, what's a real measure of the problem? Well, the real measure of how extreme a problem it is, is what God had to do, what drastic measures had to be taken to fix it. And if the answer is the incarnation of the Son of God, if God had to become fully human and dwell among us and then be crucified and die in order to atone for our sins, then that problem must have been a big one then that house must have needed tearing down because it's inconceivable that the God of the universe would resort to such drastic measures unless it was necessity that drove him, unless the scale of the problem was so big. And we look back at, at the story of the crucifixion, and we look back at this idea of a God who works through sacrifices, a God who covers uh, sin through blood. And to us, it just seems so uncivilized, so rough and coarse and brutal that this should be at the core of our religion. But the only reason why it seems extreme to us is that we don't think there's anything wrong with the house. We don't think there's anything really that wrong with the structure that God says must be consumed, must be torn down. But the reality is the house is condemned. The house of unrighteousness is condemned. The scroll has flown in and taken its dwelling place in the house of unrighteousness, and it will be consumed. If we're living there, there's not going to be any shelter left. We'll be living on a site of judgment. That may seem negative. Judgment always does. But it's actually good news because it's a promise to God's people, not only that their sins will be taken away, not only that they will be cleansed personally and receive these new garments, but also that the land will be cleansed as well. In other words, that Christ has come 
not just to save us as individuals, but to save the land, to save the creation, to save the work of God's hands so that all the effects of sin will be reversed. All of the corruption, all of the the sin and death that we see in the world will be addressed, will be dealt with, that all of the wickedness will be consumed, and the new creation will be a land of righteousness. It was meant to be. So, for us now, what that means is we've been called to live a little differently than the world around us does. We've been called to live as people who are no longer in residence in the house of unrighteousness. What that means is we can no longer justify our lying in a good cause. We can no longer justify exploitation because that's the way the world works. We can no longer justify not loving God and not loving our neighbor because realistically we can't be expected to be perfect. In other words, we've been called to live differently than the people in the land do. Like not to to lie in the name of God, but to cherish the truth in every manifestation and to make sure that when we invoke the name of God, we do so in the cause of truth and not in service to any kind of lie. We've been called not to take from our neighbors, not to to steal what they have and exploit them, but through generosity to bless them and to build them up beyond their deserving beyond the the, the point that they've earned our respect or our kindness, we've been called to shower it on them the way that Christ has showered grace on us. That's clean living. If you think about life in the land that's been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that's what it looks like. It's not just moral uprightness where I, I feel like I'm better than everybody else because I'm one of the righteous. Like Righteousness does things, and what it does is love. Righteousness guards the truth and protects it and cherishes it and shares it. Righteousness gives generously to others and refuses to take and to exploit and to diminish our neighbor. That's the kind of life we were called to live in Christ. That's the kind of life he modeled for us as well. And that's the kind of life that you live in the house of God, the house of over which not the curses, but the blessings are proclaimed. So as you think about the world to come, and you think about the justice that God has promised to administer, remember, the context for that justice is the the land of promise, the, the new creation that he has promised. But that new creation will be different from what we experience now. And if we're called to live as if that world will come, that means... We have to be different than the ways of the world that we live in now, as Jesus was. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.